couple of new MPs off the back of that, and one of them is joining us on air right now, uh, Golriz Garaman, the newest member of parliament for the Green Party. Are you there, Golriz? How are you? Yeah, I am. Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Now, we haven't got a lot of time, and uh, from what I've read, you sound like a very interesting person, and there's a lot that we could discuss, <laughs> but we'll, we'll try to keep to time. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with your background, uh, just give us the quick rundown of uh, your CV, I guess. <laughs> of my CV. Um, okay, well, I studied law and history at Auckland University. Um, sorry about that. Um, and then after that, I went out. I, was, I had no interest in practicing law. I went to work in human rights um, at Amnesty International and then very quickly figured out that actually they need me to sort of know how to enforce those rights. So I went to practice and... I think the most sort of purely human rights based law in New Zealand domestically is probably criminal law. So I became a criminal defence lawyer. Um, and, you know, there you're kind of dealing with the Bill of Rights Act and the Human Rights Act and police powers every day, which was great. But it was also um, a forum to really experience inequality in New Zealand. I, um, just to bring myself back to human rights, I guess I, um, I, I felt like I needed to kind of upskill. So I went and did a master's degree after a couple of years of practice um, at Oxford and I did this amazing course that they have which is the Masters in International Human Rights Law which is for professionals. Essentially you have to prove that you also uh, do something real in human rights as well as are academically able. So I got to meet these incredible people from everywhere in the world um, and that took me to the international tribunals. So I went and lived in Tanzania first I actually went as an intern to the Rwanda Tribunal and then got a job on another team um, as part of the defence team. So I worked on a couple of cases there and I then came back to The Hague um, and worked on uh, another case and then got a job as a prosecutor in the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Cambodia. Um, and I came back from doing that about four years ago now to New Zealand. Uh, finding New Zealand somewhat changed under the sort of it was the end of the second term of national and I so I became much more politically active then I had been in the Greens before I left New Zealand uh, but I kind of went on the executive of the Green Party and did a bit more um, directly politically I, we were that was a time when we were sort of first getting criticized for our child poverty stats and um, all of that kind of stuff was happening and child rights had been a specialisation of mine as well before I left. So I went back to that too and I um, helped with an organisation called Action for Children and Youth Aotearoa. We wrote the official non-governmental report on the rights of the child. So I do things like that here in New Zealand and I practice law um, as well in, in much more sort of human rights forums after I came back. So I went up to the Supreme Court challenging police powers and I got to work as part of the team that um, fought for the families who care for their profoundly disabled loved ones, uh, the family carers case, which um, the government then, <laughs> losing at every stage of the court process, legislated out of. So that kind of thing is what catapulted me over the last year to becoming directly politically active. Um, and, yeah, so that's a very brief history. It's a significant CV, guys. Hi, it's Rob Stewart here as well. I'm, Hi. I'm co-hosting with Abe today. How are you? Good. Um, so just to take you a little bit to the results that just come in with the specials, were you nervous, obviously, not knowing what way it was going to go? Um, 
I think that any, well, I was less, less nervous for me and much more for um, the party. And I kind of carried the expectations of the thousands of people who had volunteered for us. And I mean, it was such a tumultuous election. It was awesome to see the way that the volunteer base just, just kept going and became more and more and more active uh, as as everything sort of happened, people became more hopeful, more united, um, worked harder. And so I knew what that would mean to everyone, you know, that I'd worked with on that campaign. Your first campaign, obviously, and it was a bit of an up and down one with Matilda. Um, yeah. The, the, what, can you give us just what were the highs and the lows for you, just briefly? Um, yeah, I was excited and proud at that AGM where we actually we announced our policy to um, make New Zealand carbon neutral by 2050. So there was that significant um, standout policy and also um, that we would fix the safety net that has meant that so many Kiwis are living in persistent poverty and actually being put in a position where they have to lie just to survive often. Just, just you know, over 20 bucks here and there, which is what Materia was talking about, it was an awesome moment to have this election turn into one where there was something to really fight for. You know, there was real issues on the table and someone was being really ambitious for New Zealand. So I was really proud of us for that. And over the next few weeks, we went up in the polls to unprecedented highs for the Green Party. So we were on 15%. Um, and then, you know, the media attacks really, really kicked in. Um, Labour changed its leadership, which had a significant effect on... Um, and I think, you know, we've all just sort of realised that maybe we didn't understand MMP as a nation quite as well as um, we should. But, um, you know, so a lot of things happened and it was... But what was heartbreaking about it when the media attacks and sort of that kind of thing kicked in and when Materia's family were being yeah, put under horrible. pressure... I yeah, really and, felt for so, you know, when point. she quit, it was just... It didn't feel like we were among friends. No. For a minute, you know, it just was, it was heartbreaking to think, you know, this is what it takes to change things. I've seen it as a bit of a, like an orchestrated, I mean, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but there, every single outlet had the same message and it was an attack and it was bringing her down. I didn't want to talk about poverty. I could go on and on. Anyway, Abe had a couple more questions. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your, um, you know, the one of the most sort of widely touted talking points about your uh, ascendancy to Parliament is uh, being the first ever refugee member of Parliament and um, your background as a refugee coming to New Zealand from Iran uh, in 1990. That was, uh, of course, uh, kind of a heady time in Middle East <laughs> politics and uh, still is today. And so... Yeah, it's very other kind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I was just wondering maybe if we could talk a little bit about your take on Middle Eastern politics. Um, obviously, you know, it's very... Uh, it's very complicated. There's lots of um, friends and foes and enemies of friends that aren't necessarily friends or enemies. But um, friends and <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess uh, you know maybe just what is your take on on the current situation? Obviously, your family um, fled a dictatorship uh, of Iran, uh, and you know now they're kind of one of the major actors in this you know, geopolitical chess game that's been ongoing, and I guess the, the Islamic Revolution really took place in, in the background of that context, and, you know, but, but then again, the people that they're kind of against uh, being 
Saudi Arabia or the United States, um, you know, aren't necessarily sympathetic actors either. Uh, yeah, what's your take on the whole sitch? Yeah, um, well, the Iranian revolution is a really archetypical, I think, of, of these uprisings. Um, the, it, it was the biggest popular revolution, I think, in modern times, and it was successful in the sense that people came together from all uh, different uh ends of the political spectrum, you know, whether they were Islamists or they were nationalists, uh, you know, democracy fighters, uh, socialists, communists, students, um, and they wanted to overthrow what they saw was a puppet dictatorship. So our Shah, the uh, sort of king of Iran, um, was seen as being really held up by the United States and looking out for the interests of the U.S., so we wanted to nationalise our oil resource and, you know, so that Iranians benefited from that, but also to kind of um, put in place a real democracy so people could have an actual say in their government. And Iranians are actually really political. It's interesting to me um, whenever I get, you know, I, I get touted as having assimilated so well um, to Western life that I'm, you know, this feminist, democratic, you know, activist. And I think that's, I actually got that from, from being Iranian. So, um, you know, my parents were in that revolution, but once it was successful, it was really hijacked. Mm. And um, I remember my dad saying when the Arab Spring was happening, when Egypt was really going through that, he was, he said, oh, you know, who's behind this? And I said, oh, you know, people have just risen up and, you know, just got to that point. And he said, oh, no, that's what we thought too, but we weren't, you know, we were being used. And, and you know, sure enough, in a number of months, um, there was, you know, the, the Islamist faction had taken over and then soon after that, the military again. So it's, it, Iranians are really revolution-weary, but they sort of remain very political. And I think the one thing about Middle Eastern politics is that you learn really quickly that two things can be true at the same time. Sure. So, you know... Saudi Arabia can be a repressive, um, you know, warmongering nation, and so can Iran. Sure. You don't have to take sides. Where, where, where do you stand on Iran today? Would you see it as a democratic country? Is it, I mean, is it something, a place that you you still feel at home with, or are you definitely New, um, Zealand, New Zealand now? Or what? I mean, I don't. I mean, like I say, I think a lot of my values um, around fighting for human rights and for democracy come from that very strong tradition of Iranian dissidents, but certainly that regime is not democratic. Um, it does not uphold human rights. It weirdly engages with international law. You know, it does the reporting and that kind of thing, which is really weird to me because, you know, like China or North Korea or whatever wouldn't. But Iran does engage, so it has this sort of veneer of respectability. But absolutely not. I mean, we've got the Baha'i community in Iran are the most mm. repressed religious minority. Um, people are disappearing into torture chambers for blogging. Sure. You know, so, but I mean, I think it's really important to recognize that there is diversity in the Middle East because those people are still blogging, you sure. know, at the risk of death. They're still trying to have a voice um, that says, you know, uh, it's not okay for women to be seeking class citizens. Um, and they're doing that at, at such great risk to them. So that that definitely exists in the Middle East, um, and we should celebrate those voices. Well, and I, I'm really interested in this paradox. I mean, we've covered it on the show uh, almost for five years since the show's inception of, you know, civil society actors who are genuine and, uh, you know, for causes that are worthy, but then this um, higher level, 
you know, geopolitical game going on where there are more powerful actors just kind of waiting to co-opt them and, um, you know, revolutions being hijacked, as you say. And and I guess it just strikes me that, um, yeah, as you said, with the Arab Spring, that's, that's still going on. Um, the struggle in Syria can really be seen, you know... Uh, through the lens of this wider geopolitical struggle that's using um, some of these, you know, humanitarian issues um, as a proxy to to get people in there. And I guess I, I wonder what you thought about the the justification of, um, you know, R2P or the responsibility to protect, right. uh, you know, given dictators and genocide and stuff that you've been involved in uh, with tribunals when... Uh, you also know, and you know, as your your father, you know, so eloquently stated, there's there's often people waiting in the wings, or you know, uh, things can be true at the same time. Movements can be genuine, but there can be people, uh, you know, pushing them and facilitating them, just waiting for their opportunity to kind of co-opt it. Yeah, that's right. So um, the responsibility to protect uh, doctrine, if we could call it that, does scare me a lot because it can be co-opted. Um, you know, effectively what you're saying is that there, there are circumstances in international law where uh, another nation state can breach the borders and sovereignty of, of a neighbour or another nation state in order to uh, protect victims of a certain kind of international crime. So, I mean, obviously there's still standards within that, so it can't just be, you know, there's an uprising, a small sort of civil uh, disobedience marker, and you can go in. But still, you know, if you define something as uh, genocide or or crimes against humanity, things like that, you can kind of breach those borders and get in there militarily. And that does scare me, because who gets to decide? And what interests are they protecting? And when does that military intervention end? How do we get that foreign power to leave? Um, who, who says, you know, when safety and uh, the rule of law have been returned? Um, you, it, it scares me. There's a lot that's undefined about it. And whilst, uh, you know, we all, I think, probably can now agree that the Security Council resolution system is, is failed, um, I'm not sure that allowing more circumstances where military action is allowed by foreign powers is necessarily the answer. Um, I mean, yeah, perhaps not intervening for um, for foreign financial or oil interests in the in the very inception of things like that is you know and people say, you know what could we do about Syria? Well, we could have just stopped trading with Saudi or Iran. You know, we could have just stopped buying that oil, or at least very firmly suggested it at the very start. There are diplomatic measures, um, and you know, we could we could continue to support the Red Cross. We could continue to take refugees. Um, it, it's it, I'm just I just get nervous when there's more military options being put on the table and less diplomatic options. And and I think. Yes, when when a conflict situation is at a stage that Syria is at, we can just throw our arms in the air and go, "Well, what more? What you know? What is there but more military intervention?" But it's not like it started at this level. We had options. Sure. 
years yes. ago, and we just didn't take them. And there are other there are other conflicts that are probably you know at, at that stage. Yeah, and we just seem to look at military options or the International Criminal Court, which also bothers me. You know, because that's just the ambulance at the bottom, the bottom of the cliff. So and disproportionately applied sometimes. Um, yeah, double standards uh, yeah. in terms of well, who's you know, prosecuted and who isn't. Like in the house being attacked, you don't. Well, what are we going to charge this guy with? You know, it's like you need to make people safe first, make sure they've got food and water and they're not dying of cholera, and, you know. Well, stop y- trading with these governments, just stop. You you know, you are, you're very well around these issues, and uh, I know you've got to run off to an interview with Al Jazeera, um, so I don't want to take you any longer, but there's so much more we could talk about, and I think we're going to have to have you back on the show. Uh, <laughs> Anytime. Considering you're going to be, you know, potentially uh, going into either government or opposition, and, um, you know, both national and labor have sort of, uh, refused to rule out joining the U.S. in a war against North Korea and uh, the idea that, you know, this saber-rattling between, um, you know, just clown-like actors of Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, could not only bring the world to the brink, but uh, potentially, you know, imply some sort of uh, commitment from New Zealand. Uh, our only hope, I've always said, is that the influence of the Chinese spies in our government counterbalance the influence of the American spies in our government. But um, you're going to get to see that firsthand, and I can't wait to talk to you about that and um, yeah. the drug war and your work as a criminal lawyer. But uh, we'll let you go now, Golriz, and we really appreciate you taking the time. Great. This was great prep for Al Jazeera. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting such a um, such an awesome and depth conversation, so thank you. Thanks, Golris. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, we'll be talking to you again. Have a good one. Great. You too. Bye. Cheers. That was Golris Garaman. You're on Radio 1, 91 FM Politrix. We're going to play some tracks. and.